grateful for you being here uh, this morning and uh, excited for us to continue our series in Daniel. I want to ask, uh, ask you a question. Uh, what is your greatest fear? What's your, what's your greatest fear? Uh, I think when we, we think about that question, uh, there's some obviously common answers that uh, are true across humanity, it seems. Maybe the fear of heights. Uh, you, get up, you get up high somewhere. Uh, sometimes you're, you know, in like the fourth floor of something and the rail doesn't look that secure, you know, that, that feeling in your stomach. Um, you perhaps have a, a fear of, of spiders, um, which uh, I don't blame you. Snakes, which I also don't blame you. They are cursed by God. Uh, so um, I remember once I was killing a snake in our driveway and uh, Amelia was like three years old and I mean, mind you, it was a snake like this big. So, uh, but nonetheless, it was in my garage. Once you enter into my space as a snake, you must die, right? I'm happy if you're out in your space. If you come into my space, you must die. Um, <clears throat> and so I was killing it with a shovel and uh, in great concern, my daughter's like, daddy, say sorry, say sorry to the snake, you know? And um, I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, not sorry, right? Um, there are other fears. Sometimes fears aren't rational, right? Uh, we recently were at, um, at Aubrey's uh, Pizza Place in, in Ipsy, and uh, near the bathroom, they have a uh, replica of uh, Lady Liberty, of the Statue of Liberty, right? Uh, and so uh, Emily goes and takes uh, our kids to the restroom, and John, who's a pretty chill uh, guy most of the time, uh, comes undone at the site of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, so I'm glad that we haven't planned uh, any visits yet uh, to go see that, but uh, the replica of it, he was, he was undone, like crawling over Emily's back, scared to death, right? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Why, why are you afraid? But when you think about it, it's a green lady with fire, you know, like there is maybe something to be afraid of. But what about the more serious fears, right? I mean, I know those things are there, but most likely they don't really uh, in, you know, impede upon your life. You know, they're just kind of there, and every now and then you think about them. What about the fear of, of not being in control? The fear of, of maybe even losing control of something, maybe a relationship, maybe an area of your life. The fear, I've heard this before at the University of Michigan, the fear of being found out that you don't belong that you, you aren't really on top of your game. You're not like the rest of them. Or there's a fear that lingers in the back of all of our minds uh, that sometimes we are confronted with. In fact, it's been amazing to think about this week. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but if you, if you have been, if you are a sports fan, you no doubt have been made aware of the death of Kobe Bryant and his uh, daughter and seven other people on a helicopter last Sunday. It's, it was almost hard for me to, to think about. I, Kobe was a, um, an icon of growing up. He was one of the, the first people, uh, it seems, that's kind of uh, captured the collective conscience you know, uh, here of, of recent, uh, though there are others that we could name that have uh, certainly caused us all to stop and, and really think about that fear of death. The fear of, of life ending as you know it, the, the reality of eternity and what comes next uh, is seemingly just hanging there and, and we're, we're faced to deal with it. And, and the, the question is, when you think about these fears, especially these ones that, that really, you know, when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, these are the kind of fears that you're thinking about, like, like the things that you don't have in control, that you're uncertain about, the, the things that you don't want to face. The question is, where do you turn when you, when you face those fears? What do, you, what do you do? Where do you turn to for comfort, 
rest, and security. There's a few different directions we could look. We could turn inward, looking within ourselves for answers, right? That within, uh, within our culture, within, um, in some ways, within much of, of Eastern uh, thinking and religious thinking, there's this turn to the inside, to the inner life, and to what's within you that provides the answers. Uh, but uh, but I, I believe that we are not sufficient to be a reference point for ourselves, uh, to, to anchor ourselves in the, the fears and uncertainties of this life. So there's perhaps something that's left incomplete when we turn inward. Or perhaps you turn to those around you. Uh, I know uh, when I was a kid and I was scared, um, I didn't think about anything within myself to handle my fear of what was under my bed. I ran, right, to my parents, uh, Perhaps you have people in your life that you run to. Maybe it is a parent. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe, maybe it's an experience. There's, there's something out there that when you, when you face that fear, rather than perhaps dealing with that or to help you deal with it, you turn to someone or something, some experience to get relief or comfort. In Daniel 2, though, we're going to see that there is this turn towards God. When we face great fear and uncertainty, a turn towards God and, and when we think about that, uh, certainly uh, that, that is perhaps on many of our minds when we face fear and uncertainty is, is God. And what does it look like to turn to him? What does it look like to, to trust him? And in fact, we might even ask ourselves, what difference does it make to turn to God when we face fear and uncertainty? That's, that's what I want to, to press into today is when we face fear and uncertainty in our life, what does it look like to turn to God? What does it mean to trust him in the midst of that fear and uncertainty? We, we've already mentioned that we began this series in Daniel looking at what it means to be faithful in exile. And we've said as, um, as we think about exile, the, the Christian identity um, is, is one of, of an exile, of a sojourner. Uh, we aren't at home in this world, according to God's word. And, but there's something that's unique and that's different than uh, about our situation and Daniel's situation. Daniel and his friends are in exile because God's people are under judgment. They've been defeated by the Babylonians and are experiencing the discipline of God's hand. Well, as, as believers today, because of Christ, we are in exile, not because we're under judgment, but actually because we belong to God. Because we have a new identity and citizenship that's in heaven, we are exiles here on earth. We are sojourners here on earth. We are seeking not this city, but a city that's to come. And in fact, one of our members uh, after last Sunday said to me, he said, you know, as you, as you described it, what I began to think about was that we are in exile, not because we've been defeated, but because we're victorious. And I love that image. Uh, Alex isn't here this week, so tell him that he got props um, in, uh, in the sermon. But uh, that, that image of exiles because of victory, not defeat. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we think of our, our position in the world as one of, of being defeated as Christians. But really what, what we have is a position of victory through faith in Christ that shapes our identity as exiles. When we think about being in exile, there are two questions that we should ask. We kind of saw these last week. Number one is, where is God? If you're in exile, taken from your home, taken with, away from what's familiar, inevitably you should ask, where is God in all of this, right? That's not an unfair question to ask. Um, and, and in a very surprising and, and, and in such an encouraging way, what you see in Daniel 1 is that God is with his people. He brought them to Babylon. 
And while he has them in Babylon, he is the one showing them favor and compassion. He is the one guiding and sustaining them. God is with us. And the the banner that waves over all of Daniel and the song that we just sang a few moments ago is that God is sovereign over his people. He is with us and he is sovereign over us, fully in control. This, the, the second question, though, not only where is God, but the, the second question is how do we live as exiles? Or, or the way we put it last week, what is our posture towards our culture? When you're in exile and you're not at home, you inevitably have to think about what your posture and relationship should be to the surrounding culture. And, and we saw last week the uh, familiar statement, but one that we, we unpacked a little bit more fully, that we are to be in the world. We, we find our, uh, we, we, we settle down here, we have jobs, we have relationships and families and, and, and work that we're called to do, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be set apart and distinct as God's people, dependent on him. And then not only not in the world and not of the world, but we're for the world. We see that God gifts us to be a blessing to others, that our work isn't in vain. And, and we see how God uses Daniel uh, and his friends in a, in a really um, unique and, and significant way in Babylon. In the king's court, he, he places them in, in a position of influence and gives them favor and, and wisdom beyond any of the others who are in the king's court. God is at work with his people, and he's calling us to be in the world, but not of the world, and yet for the world. But, but this morning, I want to press into that first question a little bit more, about where is God? And when we turn to him, what does it mean to turn to him? Daniel 2 gives us a glimpse of what that looks like, of where God is when we face fear and uncertainty. And we, we see this refrain that I'll come back to time and time again, that God is there, and he is not silent. So let's look at, at Daniel 2. What, what we're going to do is this passage is rather long, uh, so I want, to, um, I want to unpack it, do an overview of it, and then press into a few points that I think are especially relevant for us as we think about what it means to turn to God, to trust God when we face fear and uncertainty. So Daniel 2 begins this way with verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and his spirit was troubled and asleep left him. So this is the context for Daniel 2. This dream is what will shape the entirety of this chapter. It says that Nebuchadnezzar in his second year of his reign had this dream. Now the Babylonians kind of recorded time a little bit differently. They didn't just do first year, second year, third year of a king's reign, but the first year of a king's reign would be considered the ascension year, uh, the year of their ascent to the throne. It was kind of a special celebratory thing. Um, and then after that ascension year was their first year and, and so on. So this is really uh, the third year of the king's reign, if you are counting in, in the numbers. And so what that means is Daniel and his friends have just graduated, so to speak, uh, from their training program that we saw in chapter one. And now they're in the king's court. Um, so if, if you want to think of it this way, Daniel and his friends uh, are really in their first days on the job, right? There, there they are, their first days on the job, and I don't know if you've ever had a boss that's had a bad day, right? Maybe a prof that's had a bad day. Well, this is that, but on steroids, right? Like, uh, it's a really bad day uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, and it's going to get really bad uh, for his spiritual advisors in his court. Um, and, and so what, what, what happens is this dream leaves Nebuchadnezzar troubled. 
It takes away his sleep physically. He's, he's restless within his soul. He's, he's troubled. Something has disturbed him about, his, about this dream. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've woken up from a dream. Maybe you don't remember the dream or maybe you remember the dream all too vividly and you're just kind of disturbed, right? Um, I'm not here to psychoanalyze any of your dreams. Uh, that's not the point of, of what we're going to do uh, in this passage. But I think we've all had that experience where we've been troubled. But, but obviously, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled in a, an even greater way. I, I don't think that he saw Pennywise, right, in his dream and is just disturbed by it. I think there's something more. In fact, we'll see that there's something more. But, but what happens is Nebuchadnezzar's dream sets up um, a scenario in which we see a contrast, between the, the Chaldeans, which is, uh, is used as like a reference to the ethnic people of Babylon, but also it's kind of a technical term that gets used in reference to like the, the professional spiritual people in Babylon, like the magicians, the sorcerers, the, um, you know, the, the enchanters. Uh, the, the, these people who basically spiritually advise the king are Chaldeans. And, and to kind of help you understand uh, how this even fits in, like the magi who visit Jesus, they come from this region. Like they're known for their, their astrology. They're known for their kind of omen reading and, uh, and their, their magic and sorcery. It, it's really, it sounds like we think Harry Potter, right? When we hear that, it's not like that. There aren't any wands from what we can tell. It's more of like a, an elaborate book uh, and rules that they have for interpreting the signs, whether it be the things in the sky, like uh, they're looking at the stars and tracking their movement. Uh, they're, they're kind of, they, they know what certain dreams mean and certain things mean this. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of what they're doing. And so there's this contrast between the, the Chaldeans, the professional spiritual people in Babylon, and Daniel. Daniel is actually one of the Chaldeans now, right? That's, that's what he got trained to be. So still blows my mind. Like he's, he's learning about the magic and the sorcery in Babylon and yet walking out his faithfulness to, to his God. And, and so he's one of them, but yet he's not like them. It's kind of like the countercultural witness we talked about last week. So hard always to know what exactly it looks like and how to navigate it, but that's what Daniel is doing here. And so the king says, not just tell me what my dream means, but tell me my dream and tell me what it means. Right, And so uh, we're, we're not going to read all of this because of the sake of time, but in verses 2 through 11, what unfolds uh, is basically his advisors are like, all right, king, I mean, we've done this before. Tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means, right? You know how it goes. And the king's like, no, you have to tell me my dream, all right? And then tell me what it means. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty thrown off by this. Uh, and it escalates really quickly, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had somebody ask you for something and, uh, and, and then things escalate kind of quickly, but, but that's what happens here. If you don't tell me what my dream is and what it means, you will be torn from limb to limb and your house will be destroyed. All right. You know? And, but if you tell me what it means, I'll give you many rewards and blessings. All right? That, that's, his, that's his offer to his spiritual advisors. And, and they're still so disturbed by all of this. And they press him and they ask him again, tell us your dream, king, and we'll tell you what it means. And it, it raises the question of why did, why did Nebuchadnezzar insist on them telling him his dream? Did he forget? 
perhaps. I mean, I, I've had dreams where I've forgotten what they are, but I'm sufficiently disturbed by whatever it was, right? Like, I don't know what I dreamed, but like, I don't feel right this morning, you know? Um, it's usually whatever I ate before bed, right? I shouldn't have had that Moose Tracks ice cream right before bed. Like, <laughs> something happened, you know? Um, but uh, there's this sense that maybe he forgot, and he really wants them to tell him, like, please tell me what I dreamed. I actually don't think that's what it is, because when they press him a second time, if you look uh, in, uh, in verses 6 and 7, or specifically verse 7, it says, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king said, I know what you're trying to do, verse 8. You're trying to get more time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you don't make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. See, I think the king's unsatisfied with his spiritual advisors. He's unsatisfied with his religion, as it were. He knows how the process works. Tell the dream to the advisors and they tell you what it means. But something's different. He's troubled by what he saw. He wants to know what it means, and he doesn't want them to play games with him. He's not just, they're they're hoping maybe he forgets, you know, he'll forget about it. We can just move on. He's he's determined to find an answer, but, but this is what brings us to the real point in verses 10 and 11. Basically, the Chaldeans answer him. They say, there's no man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Nobody can do this. No magician or a chanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king has asked is difficult. Understatement, right? And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So these spiritual advisors who represent the gods before the king have no answers. Here's what we see. This, the, in, in the Chaldeans' lack of, of response to the king, we see the inadequacy of spiritual insight apart from God's revelation. If we could say it another way, like when, when we try to, to answer the, the, the pressing questions of our times, the, the answers for the things that trouble us and that disturb us and the uncertainties that we face, if we try to go about answering them apart from what God has to say, every time it'll be incomplete. Every time it'll be inadequate. And, and here's, here's what this means for us as people in exile, as, as God's people seeking to be faithful in exile is we need God to guide us and sustain us. Nebuchadnezzar is looking for answers. He's looking for answers in the place that anybody in his position would look from the gods of his people. Give me answers, he says. And the good news is, though, that while we look for answers, there is a God who will guide us and sustain us. And that God has spoken, and he's spoken through his word. He is not silent. And we see how he's not silent in verses 12 through 19 where we see Daniel's response. Starting in verse 12, we begin to see the contrast that I mentioned between Daniel and these other spiritual advisors. Once the advisors don't have an answer, the king says, that's it. He orders the death of all the wise men of Babylon. And I don't know if Daniel wasn't involved in the mix because he was a new guy, you know, or or exactly why he doesn't seem to show up until this point, but but he gets informed of the situation at this point. And uh, this guy named Arioch comes and knocks on his door. I mean, just imagine how this plays out, right? Daniel probably knew Arioch, right? And so Daniel gets a knock at the door. You know, oh, it's Arioch. Hey, Arioch, how's it going? 
hey Daniel, um, um, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, um, I'm here to kill you. You know, like in this moment, there's a few options that you have. If somebody knocks on your door and informs you politely, it's grateful that they informed them, right? We're here to kill you. There's a few options you have, right? Run, right? Size them up, make sure you can beat them and run. That's one option. You know, go Conor McGregor on them. That was number two and like fight. Um, or you could be like Daniel. And Daniel, with prudence and discretion, ask Arioch, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Another word here could be translated harsh. Why is this so harsh? Daniel, Daniel responds with this wisdom and this discernment. I would freak, right? I mean, totally lose it. You're here to kill me? What? Daniel doesn't. He, he presses in and says, what's the urgency? What's the, why the harshness? What's the thing that the king is seeking? And Arioch informs him uh, about the king's decree. And it says that Daniel requests time for the, from the king so that he can, he can come up with a, um, an interpretation to show him. So Daniel asks for time. And, and then what he does is he gets all his friends together and he gathers Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. I mentioned this last week. Here they are going by their Hebrew names. Though they're in exile, they haven't forgotten who they are as God's people. And what do they do? They get together. And they go on Google and they figure out how to interpret dreams, right? And they get together and they pray. Daniel says, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that we might not be destroyed. Seek mercy from God. God, we're pleading with you. Help us. This is what dependence on God looks like. When you're faced with the fear of your life being on the line, you don't go to anxious toil and coming up with your own scheme and plan. Like Daniel, you would go to God. Dependence on him. God, help us. We are throwing ourselves at your feet. We are dependent upon you, God. Show us what to do. God, we don't know what to do. Show us. Show us the dream. Show us the interpretation. We need your mercy, God. And then Daniel goes to bed. Somewhere in there is a trust in God that allows you to rest when life uh, is chaotic and crazy and filled with fear and uncertainty. There is a, a dependence on God that allows you to lay your head down at night and go to sleep when you don't have all the answers. It's a gift from God that his peace meets us in our moments of greatest need. And it's as Daniel rests that God makes known to him this dream. He reveals the answer. God is the revealer of mystery. He intervenes. And I just pause here to, to point this out. As, as God's people, we, we know what prayer is. We know the tool that prayer is, the, the gift that prayer is, that we have access to God. You see, in the Christian life, prayer isn't just a spiritual discipline that shows our devoutness to God. I think sometimes that's how we look at prayer. Praying people are really devout. And they, they have like a special place. And, and no doubt that those who pray, and we've, we've perhaps known people who, who might be called a prayer warrior, who really, uh, when they say they pray for you, they mean they're praying for you. 
there's something special and a gift uh, that God has given those kind of people in the church. But, but here's, here's the thing that, that we have to understand about prayer. Prayer is a privilege. Prayer is an invitation. Prayer is access to the God of the universe, the God of heaven, the God who has the answers to come before him as children who don't have to cower in fear that he, he's going to shut us out, but as children who have the full confidence that our Father delights to hear us and answer our prayers. Well, that changes the way you think about prayer, doesn't it? And if God has so clearly spoken to us today as his people in his word and through the coming of Jesus, we dare not be silent before him in prayer. God speaks so loudly to us. We should have so much confidence to speak before him in prayer. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends do. And God intervenes. And God reveals the prayer. And, and he reveals the dream. And, and the dream is, is fascinating. And in some ways, it'll come back up in the latter half of Daniel as we look at what this dream means. It's basically a dream about God's kingdom coming and, and defeating all other kingdoms. Um, and and what, what is significant, though, is that God is the revealer of mysteries. Multiple times it says this. We, we won't read all of these, but, uh, or the whole passage, but look, look at just these summary statements. In, in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 2, it says, No wise man, this is what Daniel says to the king, No wise man, enchanter, magician, astrologer can show the king this mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In verse 29, it's, it's God who reveals mysteries. In verse 30, Daniel says, This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom of my own. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that God gave Daniel wisdom and skill and understanding all visions and dreams. It's God's gift that has allowed Daniel to meet this need. And after Daniel reveals the dream in verses 45 and 47, as the king responds, it says, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Verse 47, truly, he says to Daniel, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. God is there, and he is not silent. He has spoken. The gods of the Babylonians don't dwell with flesh. The gods of the Babylonians don't have an answer for the king. But there is a God who is in heaven who reveals these mysteries. This sets God apart from all other gods, that he reveals himself, not only through a written word, which isn't just unique to Christianity, though he has revealed himself in the Bible, the word of God, he's revealed himself in the flesh. God has come in the flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. God has a word for the world. God has a word for, for King Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. God is a speaking God. He's a revealing God. He isn't silent. He makes himself known and his plans known. It's his kingdom plan that he makes known to, to Daniel, to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. The, the, the dream in verses, um, in verses uh, 31 through uh, really down through verse 42 um, is this dream of a statue that the king has. Uh, and it's a statue has a gold head, 
which represents Babylon or, or Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's the silver body, which most likely is the, the Persians or the Medes that come after them. And then there's this, um, <clears throat> this bronze legs that represents most likely the Greeks who come and rule over all the world, it says. And then there's this one that's stronger than all the others. It's made of iron, but it's partly strong and partly brittle because it's iron mixed with clay. It's most likely a reference to the, to the Roman Empire. Here's God laying out the next four empires of the world. And he says, there's going to come a little rock cut out of a mountain without human hands that will strike the clay feet and bring it all down. And God will establish his kingdom. And it's a kingdom, it says in verses 44, that the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up in those days, God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The dream, though, I don't think is fully the point. The statue is fascinating. We'll, we'll talk about it in more detail. But, but what is it that, that really is going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart? In chapter 3 next week, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed, desired, of building a statue like this. And next week in chapter 3, he's going to build a fully golden statue of himself and call people to worship him. Nebuchadnezzar isn't short of ambition and desire for greatness. That's what he's wanting. And in fact, that's why I think he's so disturbed by the dream. Here he sees the statue he's been longing to build. And somehow it's going to be destroyed by a little rock? How unsettling, how unnerving. I think what, what we see happening is, is basically Nebuchadnezzar being confronted with this question. It's a question that confronts us. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Perhaps the even more pressing question is how secure is it? Are you building it on your own personal dreams and ambitions? Are you dreaming it on your own accomplishments? Are you dreaming it on your own status, financial or otherwise, a relationship, an experience? How secure are those things? Where do we turn when we face our greatest fear and great uncertainty? Daniel shows us that we can turn to God and God has answers. God isn't silent. He makes himself known. And, and in verses 46 through 49, as God makes this known to, to Nebuchadnezzar, on one hand, Nebuchadnezzar is relieved, like he's the gold head, you know, so uh, it's going to be a while before it all gets torn down. Uh, so he's somewhat relieved, but he recognizes that it's the God of heaven, the God of Daniel, who makes these things known. And, and Daniel and his friends are, are elevated to great prominence in Babylon. This isn't a sermon about being like Daniel, though. I can't promise you if you're faithful to God and you trust him with your fears and your uncertainties that you'll get promoted to a place of prominence. It might be the exact opposite. Often our faithfulness leads us sometimes to hard places. But the question is, when we face these things, when we are in those hard places, where do we turn? What do we trust? And that's where the hope that we see in this passage comes out so clearly, that there is a God who is there, who has spoken and made himself known. So I, I want to ask you as we, we look at all this, what are your fears 
and insecurities, uncertainties that you face in your life. I think like Nebuchadnezzar, deep down we all fear perhaps that we're building our life on the wrong things at times. Sometimes we're convinced that we're doing that. We're headed down a wrong path. We know that something isn't right. You just heard it even in Derek and Heather's testimony. There's this sense of, I'm not sure where any of this is headed. What have I done? Uncertainty, fear. What are you building your life on? We might pursue the wrong career. We may marry the wrong person or move to the wrong place or take the wrong job. You may already feel dissatisfied with the decisions that you've made in your life. I've been there. You may wrestle with feeling like you can't get your arms around things in your life, that everything's just out of your control and it's too difficult. In those moments, where do you turn? What does trusting God look like? This is the call of this passage, that there is a God who is there and is not silent, that we can trust in our fear and our uncertainty. It's actually Daniel's prayer that I think gives us a hint of of why we can trust God and, and what it looks like to trust him. Look, look at verses uh, 20 through 23. We, we read it during our worship. We see that it says, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, that darkness that scares us, that creates uncertainty. He knows what's in the darkness, and he is the light, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, wisdom and power, and have made known to me what we've asked you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. We see God's sovereignty and his wisdom mentioned in this prayer. And I I think there are three things that, uh, three truths that can sustain us as exiles that we see here. These are from an author named Jerry Bridges, but they, I think, um, mesh so well with what we see in Daniel 2. The first is this, that God is completely sovereign. This is a truth that sustains us as exiles, that God is completely sovereign. He's been working out all these things. It's God's power that's at work bringing all of these things about and meeting Daniel in his need and and, and helping him understand the king's dream and, and giving answers for what he needs. It's, it's God's sovereignty that confronts Nebuchadnezzar, the uncertainty of what Nebuchadnezzar is building his life on. He's confronted with that reality when he hears of God's kingdom, a kingdom that will never be defeated, that will never be crushed, that will defeat all other kingdoms. All other things must be brought under that. Do you trust that God is completely sovereign? That he's a in control and working out all things in our life for his glory and our good. We see it time and time, time and time again in Daniel. God is sovereign. In fact, I think it's it's believing God's sovereignty that helps us to endure the trial and the difficulty. Apart from God, there's great uncertainty coupled with great flexibility. If you have no, God as no reference point in your life, there's, there's, no, uncertain, there's no certainty that, that anything uh, is sure, but you, you can do whatever you want. There's no rules, no limits. With God, sometimes it seems that there's little flexibility, but yet there's great certainty. But actually, it's, it's different. When we see that God is completely sovereign, we know that we can have certainty, and it doesn't rule out prudence. It doesn't rule out acting with, with wisdom and discernment. 
we see Daniel trusted God was in control, but he responded prudently with discernment. It doesn't rule out coming up with a plan to trust that God is in control. It doesn't mean flying by the seat of your pants to believe that God is in control. For God to be completely in control is what gives us the confidence to plan and to work and to prepare, trusting that God is going to work through it all. This sustains us as exiles. God is completely sovereign. God shatters the illusion of our self-sovereignty. The idea that you're the captain of your soul. That you're commanding the ship of your life. It sounds great. But it leaves us empty every time. It leaves us incomplete every time. We aren't capable of being sovereign over our lives. We, as Francis Schaeffer said, are not a sufficient reference point for ourselves. We, we just can't look to ourselves and, and have all the answers. We have to look outside of ourselves to a God who is completely sovereign, but not only completely sovereign, God is infinite in wisdom. God is infinite in wisdom. We see here that it's his wisdom that makes known these things to Daniel. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And I think the thing that we need most as exiles, knowing how to live in a place that's not our home, is wisdom from God. It's the taking what God has revealed in his word and applying it to real life. That's wisdom. That's discernment. And God is the one who's infinite in wisdom. You want answers? God may not answer all the details of your specific questions, but he guides us into the type of people that he's calling us to be so that we'll know how to respond to the situations and circumstances we face. God is infinite in wisdom, and his infinite wisdom is infinitely available to us when we seek it. Ask me, he says in James, anyone who is without wisdom, and I'll grant it. Ask me believing in faith that I'll give it to you, and I'll give you wisdom. I'll help you navigate that decision and that fear, that uncertainty. God is infinite in wisdom. But not only that, God is perfect in love. Completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. It doesn't say it explicitly here, but God is working all these things out for the good of Daniel. And his friends. He spares not only Daniel and his friends' life, but all the wise men of Babylon. And, and when you put these things together, if, if God is completely sovereign and is, is infinite in wisdom, how do we know that we can trust him? Right? We know he's powerful. We know he's going to do what he wants to do, and, and he has this wisdom. But do, can we really trust him? He's perfect in love. His love for you is unfailing. His love for us is unfailing. Does God really know what's best for me? He's infinite in wisdom. But if I do this, is this going to just ruin everything? Is, this, is God going is, is to leave me or, or forsake me? He's completely sovereign. He meets us in the trial. He meets us in the fear and the uncertainty. All these truths come together to be a foundation, an anchor for us when we face fear and uncertainty, whatever form it might take in your life. Are you building your life on, on God, on a God who these things are true of, a God who is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love? If we are, then we can have confidence, whatever our fear and uncertainties may be, that he is with us and he has spoken 
He makes himself known and we can rejoice and delight in that. I hope you do. I, I, I feel uh, that in, in our situation, our season, and our stage in, in life and in this culture, there's, there's so many fears and uncertainties that just surround us on a daily basis. Information that's unlimited, it seems, but we're so short on knowing what we should do. We're so short on knowing how we should act and where we should go and how we should live. And there is a God who's spoken. There is a God who is there that we can trust in and that I want, I want us, when we think about what it means to live in exile, hear me, I, I do want you to be like Daniel, but Daniel 2 isn't about being like Daniel. Daniel 2 is about believing in Daniel's God, a God who's sovereign, a God who's wise, a God who's perfect in love. And when we step back from Daniel 2 and we look at Daniel 2 in light of the entirety of God's word, I can't help but ask, what would it look like if God dwelt with flesh? The Babylonian gods don't dwell with flesh, the Chaldeans said. What would it look like if, if God was in person full of wisdom and power? What would it look like for God's love to show itself to us in the most complete and full way? It would look like Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was the wisdom of God. Jesus is the power of God. In Jesus is the love of God fully displayed for us to see. But do you know what? For 2,000 years, and even further back before Jesus, when God holds out his wisdom and his power and his love, People look at it and they say, this is foolish. That's what they did during Jesus' day. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is speaking about how Jews and Greeks both hear the message of the cross, the message of Jesus. He says in, in verse 18, the word of the cross, this message that God has spoken through the cross is folly, foolishness to those who don't believe, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Listen to how he unpacks this, starting in verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the message that we declare, that's foolish in the eyes of the world, it pleased God to save those who would believe. The Jews demanded signs. They wanted to see God's power put on display. Show me a sign, they said to Jesus. The Greeks demand wisdom. They, they want to know how everything works and how it all fits together. And John would say, I'll give you wisdom. It's the word, the word who was in the beginning. And at the beginning, nothing was made apart from the word. And in him, all things hold together. He's the one that explains everything. Paul says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks, to anyone who would believe Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God on display and the wisdom of God on display. For the foolishness of God, as the world sees it, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, as the world sees it, the weakness of God dying on a cross for sinners, that weakness is more powerful and stronger than men. 
Here's where it all leads us. We think about Daniel 2. I mentioned this truth that permeates this passage is that he is there and he is not silent. I've alluded to who actually said that, but I haven't made it clear. The author who said that, his name's Francis Schaeffer, back in the 70s and the 80s, a prominent writer in Christian circles. He wrote a book explaining how the, the, the problems, the questions of the age, what is true, what is right and wrong, how can we know things, these questions of epistemology and morality and, um, and, and other questions about what is really there and the meaning of life. He says the, the reason that we can have answers and be confident to those things is because we have a personal, infinite God who's made himself known. Without a personal, infinite God who makes himself known, we have no reference point, no, no ability to answer the most pressing questions of our time and of our lives. But there is a God who is there and is not silent. I, I can't press into all the details of what Schaefer has said, but I, I, I remember reading this book in college, and I've never forgotten that, that simple statement, that God is there and he is not silent. He's made himself known through his word. What a beautiful testimony we've heard of the faithfulness and reading God's word, how it transforms us. But he's made himself known in Jesus. The wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God for sinners displayed. And it's the message of the cross that brings rest to a restless soul. It's the message of the cross that brings peace in the midst of uncertainty. The message of the cross that gives hope when fears prevail. The cross is our anthem. The cross is why we know God is there and he is not silent. He has spoken. He's yelling for us all to hear. Infinite in wisdom. Completely sovereign. Perfect in love. And get this, for you. For you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, what a gift to hear from you this morning, to hear from your word, that you are a God who is there and is not silent. You have spoken so loudly and clearly for us all to hear. You have spoken in Jesus. God, this morning, I, I pray that you would, you would anchor us as your people in your word. That, God, you would, you would anchor us in Jesus, who is uh, the, the wisdom of God, the power and love of God displayed. God, we, we all question, are we building our life on, on what's secure and what's right? Would you help us to discern, perhaps, where our hope and our security lies this morning? Bring us back to you. God, if we've yet to put our trust in you, if we've yet to really turn to you and, and, and declare that you are our Lord, the one in charge of our lives, our Savior, the one who rescues us from our greatest need, our sin, God, would today be a day that, that you open our eyes to see our need for you and that we confess we, we are sinners that need you and we believe that you have given us everything we need. A foolish message in the world's eyes, but but power and wisdom for all who would believe that Jesus died in our place and for our sins and that he rose again. God, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their trust in you, would today, this morning, be the morning of salvation. They would confess their sin and, and call out to you, believing in you to be their Savior. 
And Lord, would you help us now as we respond to, to take stock of our lives and where we find ourselves this morning? Would you help us to know what it looks like to trust you even now in our fear and our uncertainty? We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you're there and you're not silent. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.